Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Today's book is This Bridge Called My Back, Writings by Radical Women of Color. It's an anthology of essays, letters, and poetry by Black, Native American, Asian American, and Latina women, some of whom identify as lesbian. It was edited by Cherie Moraga and Gloria Ansaldua and published in 1981. I had never read a book like this before, and because all the essays are written in the first person and based on these authors' real lives and their thoughts and feelings and hopes and anger and grief, I had the sense of sitting next to them or reading their diaries, and it was sometimes uncomfortable, and I'm so grateful for that discomfort because it expanded the borders of my understanding and it helped me think about some things differently and it increased my empathy. And I'm not really someone who's lived in a bubble. I've lived abroad in several different countries. I speak Spanish. I have many close friends in South America. I'm really, really lucky to have a circle of friends that includes lots of different people from different backgrounds. And yet even then, with this book, I found myself constantly pushed to learn and to consider new points of view. And I really felt my heart and my mind grow so much. So I highly recommend reading this book in its entirety to listeners. It was really, really life-changing. And I'm so excited to discuss it today with my reading partner, Jen Lee Smith. Hi, Jen. Hi, Amy. It's so great to be with you. It's so great to have you here. I'm so excited about this this conversation. Jen and I um, have tons of mutual friends in California. Actually, we should have known each other for years and years, given how many people we both know. Um, and our daughters know each other as well. Um, they were in the same dance class once, and um, they have mutual friends too. But it actually wasn't until really within the past year or maybe two years that that we went on a few walks together and had lunch together and we discovered that we have tons in common. Um, and um, I've, I've known who you were also, Jen, through your work. Um, and so some listeners might be familiar. Um, certainly many listeners will be familiar with, with your work, Jen. Um, Jen Lee Smith is a producer behind the award-winning films Faithful, which is about um, two women in love with each other and their religion, and Jane and Emma, which is a movie about the friendship between Joseph Smith's wife, Emma Smith, and a Black convert named Jane Manning James. Um, both films are amazing. I can't recommend them highly enough. Um, Jen, you do such incredible work, and um, I'm so, so grateful that you agreed to, to, to read this book with me and discuss it. And I, I was thinking about how I know you had read the book before. And in fact, I think you're the one who suggested that I put it on the reading list, right, Jen? Yeah, I remember when you told me about your awesome podcast and I was looking through your reading list and it, you, would, you had just started. Um, there are a couple of books that were missing and they were books that helped define my feminist identity in grad school. I had read This Bridge Called My Back and Sister Outsider. Um, in grad school, in women's studies classes, and basically had declared myself a third wave slash transnational feminist. Mm. <laughs> you know, it was so meaningful to me. And I, I had read the first wave and second wave uh, literature as well. But, um, you know, these two books really changed 
my perspective on what it means to be a woman of color feminist. Um, and then, of course, I read Roxanne Gay later, mm. you know, her book, Bad Feminist. Mm-hmm. And then I realized I was better at being the bad feminist. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Me too. All of us, right? Uh, that's funny. Yeah. Well, let's start by having you introduce yourself, Jen. Just um, tell us who you are, where you're from, um, kind of some of the perspective that you bring to the discussion today, just in terms of your life experience thus far. Sure. Um, I was born on an island called Taiwan, and most Taiwanese people would would it like would like to be recognized as a country. Um, but regardless, Taiwan is a friendly, vibrant, democratic place, and the first to legalize same-sex marriage in Asia in 2019. I was five when I immigrated to the U.S., and I grew up in Utah and California studied international relations for my undergrad in Utah, and then I started a PhD in feminist and human geography at UCLA. Um, This I never finished, so I'm a PhD dropout, because (laughs) in Los Angeles, I discovered screenwriting and film producing classes instead. (laughs) But I did earn a master's in geography from UCLA, which is useful in the producing of mostly documentary films. Um, I'm happy to share why that is um, at any point. Yeah, talk about it now. That would be great. Well, yeah. So uh, one of the courses I took in my geography program was ethnography, uh, which is is field work, Um, basically studying people, you know, um, at their homes and their in their local sites and interviewing them and really immersing yourself in the place. And this is pretty much what a documentary filmmaker does, is we go out there into the field, we establish relationships and, um, you know, fully recognizing our observer status, we go out and kind of try to, you know, tell a story in a way. Um, So yeah, I felt like my background in ethnography really um, helped me, you know, in this work. And I welcome opportunities all the time to be a part of film and writing projects that explore underrepresented stories, um, especially at complicated intersections. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I started my producing career focused on films at the intersection of religion and sexual orientation. Uh, One of those films will be out on Netflix in August. Amazing. Um, Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, the, the director is Christine Stalakis, and it's called Pray Away, uh, premiered at mm-hmm. Tribeca. Um, and another relevant film is called Dilemma of Desire, about the gender politics around not recognizing female sexual desire. And um, I decided to play a small role in that in that film because it's rooted in Audre Lorde's essay, Uses of the Erotic. Which is from which you can find inside a uh, sister outsider, which you'll discuss on this podcast. Yep. That's right, exactly. That's very exciting, and I'm really excited for your reading partner and to hear from yeah. her. <laughs> yeah, she's great. So right now, I'm collaborating on a film on indigenous knowledge of fire to heal our lands. A collaborating on another film on a black woman in her 70s and her passion for more inclusion in tennis. That's a short documentary and also a feature length sports documentary on 
an Asian female basketball player. So, um, oh yeah, and I'm also co-editing an upcoming book titled I Spoke to You with Silence, Essays from Queer Mormons of Marginalized Genders. And it's a book I would have liked to read when I first realized in my mid-20s that I was also attracted to women. Fortunately, I didn't get to read, I did actually, fortunately, get to read Professor Lisa Diamond's research on female sexuality. And honestly, it's an honor that she's written the foreword to to this book. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty cool. She's like so many people's hero. Um, And it's published through the University of Utah Press. Oh, that one should be out in like six to eight months. Okay. Wow. You have so much going on. You're a prolific producer of of art and really, really important projects. I'm so excited to check out all of the stuff that you have kind of in the pipeline right now. And it makes me so grateful that you're willing to participate in my project at the same time, given how busy you are producing such incredible work. So um, my next question is, um, I always ask my reading partners kind of what interested them in breaking down patriarchy, or you could interpret that as like, what does breaking down patriarchy mean to you? Or you can kind of answer that however, however you like. I am just so happy that this podcast exists. I mean, it's a genuine pleasure to be here with you. Um, and I'm so glad that you're the one to do it. Oh, that's so nice. I'm, I'm a fan of your writing on Medium. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, as you said in some of your writings, you you know, you and I both gravitate to the fault lines. I'm borrowing your words. And I'm wondering if it's because, like, we notice that people are just better to each other when they do the hard work of learning about categories of difference and how most of these categories are made up, how they're socially constructed. Mm-hmm. From my experience, I first I first need to do the work of listening and learning and diving into questions of difference before arriving at the understanding that I have more in common with people than I initially thought. So I think your podcast is doing the work of breaking down notions of hierarchy, like where these notions and ideas come from, how they became embedded into our culture and systems, like the history, you know, of these ideas, and, and then discussing whether or not these notions are still useful to us as humanity, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? So, and, and, and also like a while back, um, I realized I'm just interested in every single aspect of activism, right? Like if there's injustice, like I want to be there, mm. but um, it's just, it's very broad. And so I decided I needed to focus on one thing. Right. And um, so I, I tend to focus on gender and spectrums of gender and of course, while recognizing the artificiality of binaries, it it does feel like in this age, in this geological age, where you know our human species make the the biggest impact, you know, on on this little rock that mm. we're on, um, we people call it the Anthropocene era. Mm-hmm. That our Earth is out of balance with too much of this masculine energy. And that masculine energy as well as feminine energy, that's accessible regardless of our of one's gender. Um, so I just felt like what you're doing is is really important. In a way, it, it is build, building bridges <laughs> to 
of mm. understanding. The more I meet people um, in different localities, the more I realize like um, that this type of conversation, as hard and as uncomfortable that it is, is completely and totally necessary. Mm. Oh, thanks, Jen. Well, it's. It, I feel like we're in the arena together, and it's it's really an honor to work alongside you in in that effort. So, thanks. Same. Same. Mm. I have thanks. here a quote: "Where white yeah. supremacy hurts all races, male supremacy hurts all genders." I haven't heard all of your podcasts, but I, I imagine that someone has already brought this up, right? And if they have, say it again, because that's, okay. that's awesome. Yep. That's I, I'm true. sure I'm, I didn't come up with this. Um, but this, it just came to me, you know, as I was preparing for this. But where white supremacy is hurtful to all races, including the white race, and later on we'll talk about the history of the word race, mm. male supremacy hurts all genders. Hmm. It hurts males. And I'm sure you've mentioned this before in your podcast, yep. uh, ways in which it hurts men. Any kind of like constructed hierarchy seems to be hurtful to all. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> yeah, it is. And it's true. And we have talked about that and we will continue to talk about it because it's something that's so imp- important to unpack and especially for men who have been listening and engaging with these ideas too, which I really appreciate their courage because that's hard to do. And but uh, understanding the ways in which patriarchy hurts boys and men, also, and mm-hmm. people of all genders, right? Like um, regardless right. of gender, it's not good for anybody across the spectrum. Correct. Yep. Yep. Well, thanks, Jen. That's a great introduction. Um, and the next, the next step is just to introduce the um, the book itself and its editors. So I'll talk a little bit about Sheree Moraga and. Gloria Ansaldua, um, and then we'll dive in to the text itself. So Cherie Moraga, and I have to say, I actually mispronounced her name as I was introducing this book on our previous podcast. I had said Cherie because I speak Spanish and there's an accent over the I, and it's not a name mm-hmm. I had seen before. So I was pronouncing it like what it would be in Spanish, but apparently she pronounces it Cherie. So it's Cherie Moraga, which is a Spanish name. Um, (laughs) She was born in 1952 in Los Angeles, California, and she's a Chicana writer, a feminist activist, poet, essayist, and playwright. And I'll just throw in here, too, um, that the term Chicana is the feminine form of Chicano, and it specifically refers to a U.S. citizen of Mexican descent. And so that's it's more specific than the term Latino or Latina, which incorporates like all of Latin America. Chicana means Mexican-American. Um, so she attended Immaculate Heart College in Los Angeles, gaining a bachelor's degree in English in 1974. Soon after attending, she enrolled in a writing class at the Women's Building and produced her first lesbian poems. In 1977, she moved to San Francisco, where she supported herself as a waitress, becoming politically active as a burgeoning feminist, and she discovered the feminism of women of color. She earned her master's degree in feminist writings from San Francisco State University in 1980, and she's a part of the faculty at the University of California, Santa Barbara, in the Department of English. Um, and Sheree Moraga is also a founding member of the social justice activist group La Red Chicana Indígena. And La Red means the net, so like a net of indigenous and Chicana 
Writers. Um, it's an organization of Chicanas fighting for education, culture rights, and indigenous rights. Gloria Ansalua was born in 1942 in South Texas, and she's an American scholar of Chicana cultural theory, feminist theory, and queer theory. She graduated as valedictorian of her high school, and in 1968, she received a BA in English, Art, and Secondary Education from the University of Texas Pan American. She then earned an MA in English and Education from the University of Texas at Austin. And she loosely based her best-known book, which is Borderlands, La Frontera, The New Mestiza, on her life growing up on the Mexico-Texas border. And she incorporated her lifelong experiences of social and cultural marginalization into her work. She also developed theories about the marginal, in-between, and mixed cultures that develop along borders. So a bit about this book specifically, this bridge called My Back was a major event in women's studies in 1981 when it, when it was published. It's considered yes, it critical, right? I mean, and you can feel it actually on the podcast. I'm so happy over and over again. I keep reflecting um, how meaningful and um, useful it is to have the podcast constructed on a timeline so you can kind mm -hmm. of see what what the context that people are contributing their work in and, and you can hear things like that's never been said before <laughs> or like no one's right. really done this yet. So um, just this compilation of, of works of women of color and queer women um, as an anthology was just pretty amazing. It's, it's considered critical reading in many universities curricula. You said you read it in grad school, Jen, um, mm -hmm. And some people even credit it for starting the third wave of feminism. Um, and I, I love this. I'll just read one more um, part because this is Sheree Moraga writing about the authors of the book who contributed their pieces to the anthology. She writes, quote, the women in whose hands this bridge called my back was wrought identify as third world women and or women of color. Each woman considers herself a feminist, but draws her feminism from the culture in which they grew. Most of the women appearing in this book are first-generation writers. Some mm -hmm. of us do not see ourselves as writers, but pull the pen across the page anyway, or speak with the power of poets. The selections in this anthology range from extemporaneous stream-of-consciousness journal entries to well-thought-out theoretical statements from intimate letters to friends to full-scale public addresses. In addition, the book includes poems and transcripts, personal conversations and interviews. The works combined reflect a diversity of perspectives, linguistic styles, and cultural tongues. And that's the end of that quote. So with all of that as a setup to set the stage, let's dive in. Um, as usual, Jen and I each selected a few writings from the book. There's so much, but we just selected, you know, the samples that we'll have time for today. But I do recommend reading the whole thing. But we're gonna, um, we're gonna share passages. Oh, we don't have six hours today. I know. <laughs> I wish. I wish we Darn did. It. But yeah, pe people should read it. And um, but th it's gonna be a rich discussion because we have selected a few passages, and then we'll just talk about our impressions. So we wanted to start with the very first piece in the book, actually which is called The Bridge Poem. It's by Kate Russian. And of course, this inspired the title of the whole anthology. 
And this poem is considered really iconic in the in studies of intersectionality. So Jen, why don't you start us off and read the bridge poem? By Kate Russian. I've had enough. I'm sick of seeing and touching both sides of things. Sick of being the damn bridge for everybody. Nobody can talk to anybody without me, right? I explain my mother to my father and my father to my little sister, my little sister to my brother, to the white feminists, the white feminists to the black church folks, the black church folks to the ex-hippies, the ex-hippies to the black separatists, the black separatists to the artists, the artists to my friends' parents. Then I've got to explain myself to everybody. I do more translating than the goddamn UN. Forget it. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of filling in your gaps, sick of being your insurance against the isolation of your self-imposed limitations, sick of being the crazy at your holiday dinners, sick of being the odd one at your Sunday brunches, sick of being the sole black friend to 34 individual white people. Find another connection to the rest of the world. Find something else to make you legitimate. Find some other way to be political and hip. I will not be the bridge to your womanhood, your manhood, your humanness. I'm sick of reminding you not to close off too tight for too long. I'm sick of mediating with your worst self on behalf of your better selves. I am sick of having to remind you to breathe before you suffocate your own fool self. Forget it. Stretch or drown, evolve or die. The bridge I must be is the bridge to my own power. I must translate my own fears, mediate my own weaknesses. I must be the bridge to nowhere but my true self, and then I will be useful. That was beautiful, Jen. Can you, what are some thoughts as you read that? <laughs> so many. I was laughing at some of these sections because they're so damn relatable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's a mix of fury and isolation and sadness. <sighs> uh, yeah, and fatigue. And my shoulders were tensing up in memory of a very long period of my life when I thought it was my burden to carry the weight of representation. And when I first read Russian's poem about 14 years ago, I I had read it with the eyes of someone who frequently went out of her way to protect the feelings of white people. I mean, I was that person. I didn't, I didn't have, growing up, I didn't have various kinds of safety within my immigrant family. So a church community that was predominantly white, that became my pseudo family. So when I read these passages, I immediately felt uncomfortable and an urge to protect my church family. I thought it was my duty, you know, and my role to be the token person of color slash Asian at any given event, even though Asia represents a region of the world that encompasses like over 4 billion people. Mm. You know, I was often the Asian Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, and to be a bridge between my culture and the white culture. And incidentally, one of my projects at Brigham Young University in Utah, it was titled Building Bridges Across the Pacific. I thought this was my calling in life. Mm. And at the time, how did it feel to you at the time? Were you aware that it was kind of depleting your resources? Or I, I imagine maybe you had... I don't know. Do you still have mixed feelings about it? Like, yes, I want to help because you do have, I know you and you have these impulses. Like it's a really Mm -hmm. beautiful thing to do to build a bridge and you care about these people and you want, you know, your family to be, I I don't know. That's what struck me when you were reading the poem is like you, and did your parents speak English when you came for one thing? Like, were you Mm -hmm. literally translating? Because I, I know a lot of um, immigrant families that I know, you see those sweet children who are bilingual, literally translating for their parents wherever they go. And it is a beautiful thing to do. And also it is a burden and it's exhausting. It's like both. How, how did, right. how did that feel to you? My mother spoke great English, my father, not okay. so much. Um, so yeah, I did have to translate. Mostly I was translating American culture to my mm. parents. Um, they seem very rooted in their identity, you know, of where they grew up. And I was still rootless, floating mm-hmm. like, um, and I feel like I've never stopped floating, <laughs> to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. Always trying to find something to, to ground myself. And And so this poem is so relatable, you know, because in my effort to bridge, it was in an effort to find some roots as well, somewhere, Mm -hmm. right? And, um, and that, that really ultimately becomes a personal journey, right? Um, Being a marginalized person is, is just an added complexity in our, in all of our journeys, right? In all of our journeys, to finding ourselves. And that's why I really do love, you know, that last part of the, of the poem. But I think you wanted to talk about Shereen Moraga's. I do. um, I do. Companion piece in a way. (laughs) Exactly. Just a a couple of pages later, Shereen Moraga writes, um, a bridge gets walked over. And I'd love it if you would read that one too, Jen. Sure. Um, Here's an excerpt. Another meeting. Again, walking into a room filled with white women, a splattering of women of color around the room. The issue on the table, racism. The dread and terror in the room lay like a thick, immovable paste above all our shoulders, white and colored alike. We, the third world women in the room, thinking, back to square one again. How can we, this time, not use our bodies to be thrown over a river of tormented history to bridge the gap? Barbara says last night, a bridge gets walked over. Yes, over and over and over again. I cannot continue to use my body to be walked over to make a connection. Feeling every joint in my body tense this morning, used. How does that one strike you? like a journal entry that, you know, I very might have written as well. Um, She, she speaks to the fatigue. I've been in these rooms 
as she's described, where I consciously or unconsciously volunteer myself as a bridge to be walked over. And over time, the frustration and fatigue builds from mediating, from teaching and then filling in the gaps. Because honestly, I mean, others, they don't do the work for themselves. There's reasons for it. I understand. But uh, we carry that, you know, it's, it is our bodies. It is our lives. So it's important work for us, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, at many of these social functions, I am the only person of color. Um, so, but until very recently, I thought it was my role to explain, for example, that like when you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. This mm-hmm. is a this is a quote I think by Wayne Reed. When you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've done this and I've said this, but it doesn't matter you know, what I say or how I say it, you know, if folks choose to, if they want to feel like they're being victimized in an increasingly diverse and inclusive world, if somehow, you know, somehow queer and trans and poor, disabled people of color are are now feeling safe to speak their own truths, if that is an affront to cis, white, hetero people, that is their choice. And I can no longer be useful. As Russian says, I cannot be useful if, if my own back is broken. Mm. And her closing lines, right, reminds me that the bridge I must be is the bridge to my own power. I must translate my own fears, mediate my own weaknesses. I must be the bridge to nowhere but my true self, and then I will be useful. They set me free, these words, to explore my own privileged place in this world. I think it sets all of us free in some ways to explore our own place in the world, to explore my own suppositions and prejudices. I believe we each must be a bridge to our own power. Hmm. Because being that kind of bridge, so she says, yeah, I must be the bridge to nowhere but my true self. And that's the kind of bridge where nobody's walking over you and your back isn't going to get broken, right? Right. Um, So it's interesting. Yeah, I hadn't noticed that, Jen, actually, until right now when you're saying it this way, that she does then use the bridge differently in the metaphor, right? That there is a type of bridge that I can be, but it's, but stretching myself, you know, from between continents and having people just like, tromp over me over and over and over and over and over again eventually will break me. And so I'm going to be a bridge to like my own self and understand. And then you can be useful in a way that doesn't, I guess it's, it's another, it's a beautiful and poetic description of how to set boundaries, I guess, right? Like I need to take care of myself first and make sure I'm okay. And then yes, we can have conversations, (laughs) but not in a way that's going to continue to harm me. Am I understanding that right, do you think, in the way that she meant it? Oh, yeah, I absolutely think so. I I think, I mean, there's, I I believe that. I mean, there's always so many different ways to interpret poetry and writing. Um, But that's how I see it, right? Mm -hmm. We must first find roots within ourselves, Mm -hmm. right? Yep. (laughs) We're not going to find it from from anyone else or anywhere else and and um and we we can as a bridge 
you know, here's here's an idea. Here's here's an idea. Maybe we can we can point point you to some some yeah. meetings and some yep. podcasts. You know, yeah. Um, if I have energy and time, I I will I will sit down and I'll have a chat with you. But I must first feel safe with you. Yep. Um, right. Yeah. Right. Then I'll be useful. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's shall we move on to the next part in the book? I'll read a passage that. Um, was one of the most striking passages, I guess, of the book. And it's one that made me the most uncomfortable. There were, there were passages that were just like totally, I mean, it, again, in some ways relatable, even though I am white, I, I had had some experiences that I was like, I, ha- I can imagine what this feels like. This one, I was like, oh, I'm out of my comfort zone. And that, that was really important and positive, a positive experience for me. So I'm going to read this. It's called The Pathology of Racism, A Conversation with Third World Women by Doris Davenport. If I were a white feminist and somebody called me a racist, I'd probably feel insulted, especially if I knew it was at least partially true. It's like saying someone has a slimy and incurable disease. Naturally, I would be reactionary and take out my liberal credentials to prove I was clean. And I just realized in this, as I'm quoting, I will be skipping um, a couple of times from one page to another. So this is all from the same essay by Doris Davenport, but I'm not reading it in its entirety. So this moves on to the next page. Quote, if we even accidentally mention something particular to the experience of Black women, we are seen as threatening, hostile, and subversive to their interests. Because of their one-dimensional and bigoted ideas, we are not respected as feminists or women. Their perverse perceptions of Black women mean that they continue to see us as inferior to them and therefore treat us accordingly. Instead of alleviating the problems of Black women, they add to them. Some Black women have at least three distinct areas of aversion to white women, which affect how we perceive and deal with them. Aesthetic, cultural, and social-political. Aesthetically and physically, we frequently find white women repulsive. That is, their skin colors are unesthetic, ugly to some people. Their hair, stringy and straight, is unattractive. Their bodies, rather like misshapen lumps of whitish clay or dough that somebody forgot to mold in certain areas. Furthermore, they have strange body odor. Culturally, we see them as limited and bigoted. They can't dance. Their music is essentially undanceable, too, and unpleasant. Plus, <laughs> they are totally saturated in Western or white American culture with little knowledge or respect for the cultures of third world people. That is, unless they intend to exploit it. The bland food of white folks is legendary. What they call partying is too <laughs> low-keyed to even be awake. <laughs> oh, no. And, and I have to say, because for listeners, you can't see it. It's awake like a funeral. So too low-key to even be like a funeral. <laughs> Socially, white people <laughs> seem rather juvenile and tasteless. Politically, they are, especially the feminists, naive and myopic. Then, too, it has always been hard for us black folk to believe that whites will transcend color to make political alliances with us for any reason. The women's movement illustrates this point. End quote. Okay, so (laughs) (laughs) 
I, I had a lot of thoughts about this, and I'll just quickly share a few. I feel like this this passage can be read in a few different ways. And, you know, Jen and I, we both laughed reading it. As I read it out loud, it elicited laughter. Sometimes it can be read as humor. And I do think there are passages, I mean, there are parts of that what I just read that are intended to be funny. Um, and as a, so for me, I, as a white reader, and I am someone who does claim the, you know, the title of a feminist and, and my listeners know what that word means to me, but so she's talking to me, you know, I'm, a, I'm a white mm-hmm. feminist. And, um, so as I'm reading it, I can choose to say like, can I laugh at myself? Is some of that funny? Yes, it totally is. And I can have a sense of humor and, and see myself from a different point of view. I can make that choice. Um, and also I was just thinking as you were reading, um, you know, your very famous uh, article, I think it was called Dear Mormon Man. Yeah. And and your, and the rhetorical device that you used with that one. I mean, I laughed when you wrote that, but it was, oh. you know, it, it's, you know, it feels to me in a similar uh, kind of approach, right? Mm. That uh, Doris Davenport is engaging here. I don't know. There, there, there are some dif- there are differences, but, but it really does capture one's attention. Like, mm. like your, like your article did. Anyway, oh, just good. Cool. That's an, I didn't think of that. And that's an, to see what she's doing as like, she's using, she's being intentional using a a rhetorical Rhetorical device. device. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's definitely a legitimate way and probably what she intended, a way to read this. However, I mean, it's also serious criticism, even though parts of it are funny. And so then, yeah, again, I, as a white woman, I can choose how to respond to that. I can respond defensively and just immediately think of ways like, well, I'm not like that, or white women aren't like that. And, or I can be humble and ask myself if she's right about any of that criticism and, um, not just the criticism of being doughy lumps of clay, which (laughs) might tend to strike at some many people's actual insecurities but that's okay i can i can put aside my my um that's my so descriptive oh it is <laughs> too, too too much yeah um i have to say i did like it, parts of it again parts of it i laughed parts of it i thought you know like that's what i try to do always is to think what is this person saying like what what is like get inside their head, get inside their shoes and try to to not um, have my ego uh, kind of get in the way of trying to understand where they're coming from. But I did feel a little bit uncomfortable when I read it. It did kind of hurt my feelings in parts. It triggered some insecurities. Mm-hmm. And so I did. I'm just going to describe the process of when I read it the first time. I just kind of sat with that feeling and what dawned on me is that I had never, ever in my life read or heard somebody talk about white people like that, having strange mm-hmm. body odor, looking weird, having weird hair, um, mm-hmm. being unappealing socially, politically, culturally, physically. And I realized I have heard throughout my life so many negative stereotypes and insults about people of color through my whole life. That's right. And I've never said them. They offend me. They hurt me. Even if I haven't believed them, I have heard them all through my life, but I have never heard them about white people ever. And so to have that experience of like just that tiny little taste 
of like, ooh, ouch. And so I looked at that passage and saw that it was such an act of power for her to place herself in a position where she was central as a Black woman. She was primary. And she had the higher ground of advantage where she got to criticize and make a declaration about the other. And I was the other and feeling myself as the other, even just for a few minutes, honestly really gave me greater empathy. And it was a powerful exercise for me to have that flipped and realize that it never happened to me before. Um, and on that, I just have one more thing that... Um, the last thing I want to say is this, and this is complicated, and um, I hope I say it in the way that I'm intending, but it does make me sad. It does. Anytime a human being sees another human being uncharitably, especially about traits they can't change, like skin color or hair texture or body shape or sexual orientation or the family they were born into. and so Or a disability. Or right? a disability. Yes, Absolutely. Anything that is just an inherent genetic trait is, um, it 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 offends my spirit and it, it's hurtful and I, I I would never ever condone someone being mean to someone else, um, especially about something they can't change. So I am not at all saying that I support or condone anyone bullying or shaming or just being mean to someone else, especially on the basis of race. However, I do want to mention, I think it's important to say that individual meanness, while still hurtful, cannot be equated to the systemic legally sanctioned oppression that people of color have endured in our country and other countries for hundreds of years. So for Doris Davenport to write those things about like white people's hair is stringy is not morally equivalent. It's not on the same plane as a white person criticizing African Americans' hair, when African Americans have, you know, historically been, for example, forced to shave their heads or braid their hair or change their hair to conform to white standards. That's just one small example. Mm -hmm. um, or a, a mean, uh, somewhat a black kid in Mississippi or something saying to a white kid, "I don't want you to come to my school." That might hurt that white kid's feelings. But for a white kid to say to a black kid, I don't want you to come to my school when that black child's own grandparents may have grown up during Jim Crow. That's just the historical context matters is what I'm trying to say. And right. it drives me crazy when I hear people say like, well, one, that that mean comment is just as bad as that mean comment when it's um, people of color to white people and they'll say that it's equivalent. It's false equivalency. To me, it feels like a huge bully beating up a kid over and over and over and knowing that that bully's parents beat up that other kid's parents and their grandparents, like there's generations of bullying. And if mm -hmm. that if that bullied kid finally loses it and punches the bully, then should anyone punch anyone ever? I mean, that's an important conversation to have. And I don't like punching in general, but I mm -hmm. think everyone can agree, I would hope, that those two punches don't have equal moral weight when when one kid has been bullied for generations. Ugh, this is so um, triggering some memories. <laughs> I think you did ask if at one point, and I think I told you this before offline, the story of, of, of a physical violence enacted against me as a child. You um, have told me, yeah. And, upon, and when I responded, I feared I was the one to get in trouble because in the past, when there was a lot of verbal abuse, and 
my body reacted and I pushed a chair and the chair fell on the girl who was verbally, uh, you know, calling me chink and, you know, all the things, right? You can imagine. Um, I was the one to be reprimanded, not her. Mm. So when it, so the day it came down to physical violence, that was my fear. When the, when the child, when this, I was nine years old and when the child jumped on me, he was also nine and he was, he was white and, you know, he never called me by my real name and I swung him around, you know, he was choking me. So I couldn't breathe. I remember that. And when I swung him around and I kicked him and he cried, my instinct was that I was going to be the one in trouble because that's what happens. That's what happens, right? I should never, I should never defend myself. Um, there's got, there has to be another way around, like I have to maneuver, but there really isn't. There's just not any way around someone who wants to bully you. They will come after you. And it's, it's very frightful to be in a body that can't defend itself. Right. And this is a small case of, you know, playground bullying. But imagine the body being in the body of a black, a black man, a black woman, a black person in this country and feeling that every single day of your life. When the police pulls you over for a broken taillight, it's it means something different for a black body than for an Asian body than for a white body. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So. Yep. Thanks for sharing that, Jen. I'm, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. I'm so, so sad that that happened to you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and when there isn't safety <clears throat> at home either, it just feels really, it just feels really, um, yeah, it just, it, it hits you differently. And these days I've been reading a lot of books by Paul Levine and Bessel van der Kolk, you know, how trauma, mm-hmm. <laughs> how, that, how that stays with you. Your body remembers. Yeah, and it comes up, you know, in different times. It will come up. It will, right? Yeah, and it impacts us our entire lives. Yeah, right. So you know, and they talk about kind of recidivism of the black community in prisons, and you're like, well, <laughs> uh, you're really, you're really talking about intergenerational trauma. Yeah, that is such an important point to bring up and something that I intend to keep addressing and and unpacking in all of these texts as we um, keep moving through um, into the 20th and then the 21st centuries and um, our increasing awareness of these systemic intergenerational problems and traumas, like you said, it's so, so important. Right. And, and as Doris Davenport, you know, was engaging, you know, a, a, a certain style of writing, I, on the other hand, I could relate to the kind of almost a literal, <laughs> a literal, a literal writing by L- Nellie Wong in the book mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. her poem about longing to be white. And it was titled When I Was Growing Up. So here's an excerpt from Nellie Wong. She says, I know now that I once longed to be white. How do you ask? Let me tell you the ways. When I was growing up, people told me I was dark and I believed my own darkness in the mirror, in my soul, my own narrow vision. 
When I was growing up, I read magazines and saw movies, blonde movie stars, white skin, sensuous lips, and to be elevated, to become a woman, a desirable woman, I began to wear imaginary pale skin. When I was growing up, I felt dirty. I thought that God made white people clean. And no, no matter how much I bathed, I could not change, I could not shed my skin in the gray water. I know now that once I long to be white, how many more ways, you ask? Haven't I told you enough? So I was saying growing up, right, and I was the only person of color in a school community, I was Nellie Wong. I longed to be white. I, I didn't, I didn't want to be different. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to be different in that way, right? It was, um, my skin color was loaded with a lot of stereotypes that, um, didn't always fit me. And in addition to the movies, the magazines, the television, and a global economy that was centered on the appetites of the white American and European markets, there still exists the remnants of colonizing re- religions in normalizing a racial hierarchy. Mm-hmm. I believed this completely as a fact, an absolute truth, that my skin color put me somewhere in the middle of the ladder. You know, the people who raised me also believed this, and of course they did. This was part of uh, this idea of hierarchy, hierarchy that was socially constructed that we took as scientific fact. Mm. You know, and even as an adult, I wasn't fully aware that I had carried the pain and fear from these years of, of racial violence. It was a tough age, but I learned a particularly long and painful lesson that I would never be fully accepted. But I still kept trying, you know, I kept trying. I, I, I did try to learn swing dancing <laughs> and <laughs> I tried you know like oh, man. I try to be white yeah <laughs> I tried to I really liked McDonald's I liked <laughs> you know sausage and mashed potatoes right this the mm. tasteless food right I <laughs> I genuinely like it I do um <laughs> and <laughs> I um I you know I wanted to be accepted I was I wanted to be accepted. And Nellie didn't reference religion here, you know, at least not overtly mm-hmm. in her poetry. But religion was a huge part of my growing up years and well into adulthood. And the message from the Judeo-Christian traditions and many of the holy books and, and words from leaders is it's made clear that when, you know, when people sin, it affects their skin color. Mm-hmm. I yep. don't know if you can relate to that. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was on my mind in our, our common faith tradition. Um, yeah, it's very, expl- more so than in the Bible, it's really explicit in the Book of Mormon that the that darker skin is equated with sin. It's just, it, it, it's, it's devastating. I know that my experience reading that stuff, it made me uncomfortable. It made me uncomfortable and sad. I but to imagine what it would f- have felt like reading it as a child, as I, as my self concept was forming, I read it being inhabiting a body with light skin, and I, to be in a body with dark skin reading those passages, it just <sighs> <laughs> yeah. 
I don't have, I just feel sick. I feel sick about it actually. But even knowing I, another thing that came to my mind, I guess, um, I, I had a, a friend at my kid's elementary school who was, she's mm-hmm. Asian as well. And I, I mean, thinking of, of what she looks like, I would not have described her as having dark skin, but I know that mm-hmm. colorism is such a big deal in so oh, many cultures, right? And so like- Def- Definitely in mine, yes. She was talking to a group of friends at the elementary school. She's, you know, same age as us and had kids at the school. And she said mm-hmm. how when she was growing up, her parents would say in front of her to friends, like friends would say like, oh, such a shame that she has dark skin. And her parents would say, yeah, we found her in a dumpster. And she heard her parents say that about her over and over again. And she cried telling us decades later, decades as an adult, it still made her, it traumatized her. And it, I just, I guess like, like we said, I think it's just all the more traumatizing when you think that God thinks that of you, but to have your parents think that of you too, is just, it just, it breaks my heart. It's mm-hmm. awful. Mm-hmm. That is, that's, that's, <sighs> <clears throat> But I it's pervasive, that- right? It's in, it's everywhere, this colorism. It is. it is everywhere. In India, I've read about this too, that it's like, it's a big deal in a lot of, in a lot of countries. Oh, it makes me so sad. Corporations make a lot of money off of skin lightening products. Mm. And um, yeah, I think um, it's, it's, it has not gone away at all, mm. not even close in East Asia. Mm. I can't speak to South Asia or Southeast Asia, but um, I am aware that that mm-hmm. exists, and I'm, I'm, I, I just don't know how to keep, you know, keep it from moving on to the next generation. Yeah. I, I have a son who, who has very dark skin, and a daughter, and daughters who have very light skin, hmm. um, and I, you know, I think here's my own, I guess lab to to be that parent who you know who doesn't make a big deal about skin color Mm -hmm. um so that they all have healthy notions that uh, there shouldn't be this idea of class right Mm -hmm. around around color that like it is as you're describing in south asia or in or in east asia or just about everywhere in the and, world. Right. <laughs> Especially here and 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 in our own religion sadly. So the next um passage that I wanted to bring out is an essay called Asian Pacific American Women and Feminism by Mitsue Yamada. She says, quote, as a child of immigrant parents, as a woman of color in a white society, and as a woman in a patriarchal society, what is personal to me is political. These are the connections we expected our white sisters to see. It should not be too difficult, we feel, for them to see why being a feminist activist is more dangerous for women of color. They should be able to see that political views held by women of color are often misconstrued as being personal rather than ideological. Views critical of the system held by a person in an outgroup are often seen as expressions of personal anger against the dominant society. And they'll say things like, if they hate it so much here, why don't they go back? She Mm -hmm. goes on to say, 
remembering the blatant acts of selective racism in the past three decades in our country, our white sisters should be able to see how tenuous our position is in this country. Many of us are third and fourth generation Americans, but this makes no difference. Periodic conflicts involving third world peoples can abruptly change white Americans' attitudes towards us. This was clearly demonstrated in 1941 to Japanese Americans. We found our status as true-blooded Americans was only an illusion in 1942 when we were singled out to be imprisoned for the duration of the war by our own government. End quote. I, I, I mean, yeah. I want to ask you what, how this struck you, Jen. I just feel so sad to even ask, but what were your thoughts? Oh, oh yes. The Japanese internment camps were... Um, were brutal, especially when you realize that there weren't similar camps for German Americans at that time. Mm. Yep. Um, I think the word tenuous is the right word here. You know, for 60 years, Chinese laborers were banned from immigrating to the U.S. Mm -hmm. In the 1800s, Chinatowns were frequently set on fire. Mass lynchings were held and Chinese, along with Native Americans and Blacks, were forbidden from testifying in court when crimes were committed against them. Um, my father was told by a leader of our church congregation to, quote, go back to where you came from. Oh. You know, and if, if I had the words then, I would have said, where my father comes from, he was imprisoned for speaking out against a non-democratic government. And he was lucky to be released and to live in this country that honors voices of dissent, even if we are speaking in different languages. You know, and I've met students from Hong Kong and Taiwan who understand our American constitution, our rights and liberties and what our forefathers fought for. They, they understand all of that better than I do. Hmm. You know, I haven't had to ex experience, experience having to, to fight for our country's freedoms that we now enjoy and that I become complacent in, you know, um, yeah, you know, and so, but since the COVID-19 pandemic began, there's been a sharp increase of hate crimes committed against Asian American Pacific Islanders in this country. There's daily video documentation of the violence and the racial slurs inflicted on Asians, especially the elderly, which is really mm -hmm. sad. Mm -hmm. There's nonprofits who are set up to bike around and, <clears throat> to be called upon by the elderly so we can, you know, be on bikes to help protect them as they go from shop to shop, <laughs> mm. um, which is which is fabulous, um, but sad that it's needed. Mm -hmm. And in college once, you know, I was, here's a story. When I was in college, one time I was with a Scandinavian international student who spoke English with an accent. We were in a group and a white female student asked, you know, where we were both from. You know, she was assuming I also spoke with an accent. I told her, I'm from here. I'm an American. And she asked why my English was so good. It was an honest question, oh. but it just further mm -hmm. reinforced that, you know, a non-American white person will be viewed as more American than me, a citizen of the United States. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um. That I, so for a long time, I I wasn't aware that the Asian Americans, as a, you know, the Asian Americans as the model minority trope has roots in anti-black and brown racism. 
is a justification mm-hmm. for Black and Brown continued marginalization. So this idea of Asian Americans being good at math, uh, I think a lot of that comes from our parents were good at math. And so that's why they got visas, right? To work mm. in, as software engineers, hardware engineers, Interesting. Um, I think. Um, right? So uh, they weren't giving visas to my my cousins who were in film, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or um, mm-hmm. um, I guess America has enough filmmakers. We don't, <laughs> we don't need them from Asia. It's a trope. Oh, it's a, the model minority is a trope. It's, it's, it's a myth. Um, but it, it has been used, right, to, to create this racial wedge in our country. It, mm. It's the result of this other American myth of meritocracy that if you work hard, you, you can make it. Well, if mm. Asians can make it on merit alone, why can't other people of color in this country also do mm. the same? First mm-hmm. of all, you know, Asia again is a it's a it's a it's it's huge it's over it's 4.1 billion people and secondly highly skilled workers you know from East Asia were the handpicked success stories and these stories excluded the diversity of stories from other parts of Asia Asia mm-hmm. it, there's more and more um, better statistics I think that disaggregate for you know where in Asia you're from in this country as as people from you know as that is the the highest growing population in America from outside of the country mm-hmm. um the highest i guess immigrating population at any rate um race is a social construct with no science behind it it's written into colonizers legal system in the 17th century to justify white landowners being at the top of the ladder and black slaves at the bottom. Mm-hmm. It was also used to justify the mass killings of indigenous Americans. And mm. this leads to an essay by Barbara Cameron, mm-hmm. who, is of, who is of the Lakota native tribe. And um, she was born in 1954. She, you, know, I, I, you and I both picked this one, right? Mm-hmm. And it's titled, Gee, You Don't Seem Like an Indian from the Reservation. That's the title. Mm -hmm. And here's an excerpt I'm going to read. By the age of five, I had seen one Indian man gunned down in the back by the police and was a silent witness to a gang of white teenage boys beating up an elderly Indian man. I'd hear stories of Indian ranch hands being accidentally shot by white ranchers. My hatred for the Wasiku was solidly implanted. Wasiku is their term for white people was solidly implanted by the time I entered first grade. Unfortunately, in first grade, I became teacher's pet, so my teacher had a fondness for hugging me, which always repulsed me. I couldn't stand the idea of a white person touching me. Eventually, I realized that it wasn't the white skin that I hated, but it was their culture of deceit, greed, racism, and violence. And Barbara Cameron and her ancestors have endured acts of greed, deceit, violence, and racism from multiple generations with the influx of European migration to the Americas. I only learned of this in the past few years that there's been an epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women in this country. This uptake mm-hmm. stems from industries extracting oil or some other resource, you know, which results in large camps of these temporary male workers. They call them man camps. Mm-hmm. And they frequently undermine tribal sovereign borders, 
And when they commit a crime, the police and coroners and government officials, they always turn a blind eye. So there's there's nothing preventing them, really. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about uh, that in, in some um, episodes that are coming up later, the epidemic of um, violence against Native American women and the complete lack of intervention or any kind of care by our government that it's an epidemic. And I too only learned about it in the last couple of years and was absolutely appalled by the numbers. So we we are going to talk about that in some subsequent episodes. That's good. There's a, there's a PBS documentary that will be out called bring her home. Oh, good. That should be out sometime this year. I will watch it. That's I'll let you know when. Yeah, please do. And here's another passage that um, that resonated with me. It goes, articulate, articulate. I've heard that word used many times to describe third world people. White people seem so surprised to find brown people who can speak fluent English and are even perhaps educated. We then become articulate. Or as one person said to me a few years ago, gee, you don't seem like an Indian from the reservation. It just seems, yeah, (laughs) definitely. I think I just mentioned this earlier, right? Like I, um, I got that comment too. Your English is so good. That's Mm -hmm. surprising. And it just seems just about every person of color in this country who has a good year for American English, like AKA what Hollywood English, Mm -hmm. you know, we've heard this expression as a compliment, but it, it feels old and, othering. Mm-hmm. I'm just noticing in the next passage that, that we were going to mm-hmm. talk about that. Is this okay if I read it? Yeah, go for it. Just a, um, I'm just going to read just the tiny little bit of it. But sh- she talks about how sometimes she'll be like at a party and she mm-hmm. says, quote, I've noticed that liberal consciousness raised white people tend to be incredibly polite to third world people at parties or other social social situations. It's almost as if they make a point to shake your hand, which she writes in all <laughs> caps, <laughs> shake your hand or to in- introduce themselves and then run down all the latest right on third world or Native American books they've just read. And that's the end of the quote. Yep. And so that's a cause for introspection too. Like she's picking up on like, this person is trying too hard I mean, and I don't know, but what were your thoughts about that? Oh, I was curious about your thoughts. Well, that's how I feel. I mean, I totally think that's true. Like sometimes I, here's my thought, honestly. I mean, thinking about a white person who is really trying and maybe they can, maybe it's obvious and it can be easily detected. Like this is work for them or they're trying to, they're doing virtue signaling by saying, oh, I just read how to be an anti-racist. And they're like listing the books that they've read on, like they're trying to be woke or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's better than a person who is just overtly racist. And it's better than a person who, it shows they're trying, I guess, but I think there's still a distance yet to be traveled. And I think that as a white person, that was really good for me to read that and think, ooh, do I ever do that? Is that my attitude? Is that my intention? So I just mm-hmm. think any listener should take that and 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 do some self, you know, some reflection and 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 I guess identify the next stage in doing the reteaching because we all have grown up in a racist society and we do need to mm-hmm. keep teaching and t- and keep progressing. But 
but know that sometimes if we try too hard or if we try to do that virtue signaling, it just, Mm -hmm. that feels yucky too. I don't know. Those are my thoughts. What did you think? Yeah, I I definitely think that, you know, if you value meeting new people, right, if you're kind of built that way to want to learn about other cultures, then that comes from a genuine place, right? Like you, you genuinely want to meet them and you genuinely want Mm -hmm. to shake their hand and, and talk to them and get to know who they are and share who you are with them. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, if, you know, the question, maybe, maybe a question to ask ourselves is, you know, who is your audience in this moment, right? Are Mm. you trying to impress Mm. some other people in the room or what is your goal here? I don't know. Mm. Like, um, like, like I'm, I'm a generally introverted person, so I'm not always going to be the first person to, to, to go up to someone. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. and, um, and so if people don't come up to me, I don't always assume that they're just disinterested or um, have feel animosity or anything towards me Mm. um, because we're all different. We're all built very differently. So, but if our motivation is, you know, is to connect better, I, I totally welcome it. And here's an interesting passage from that you and I both kind of put down Mm-hmm. From Barbara, she says, a few years ago, a white lesbian telephoned me requesting an interview, explaining that she was taking Native American courses at a local university, and that she needed data for her paper on gay Native Americans. I agreed to do the, to the interview with the idea that I would be helping a sister, quote unquote, and would also be able to educate her about Native American struggles. After we completed the interview, she began a diatribe on how sexist Native Americans are, followed by a questioning session in which I was to enlighten her mind about why Native Americans are so sexist. I attempted to rationally answer her inanely racist and insulting questions, although my inner response was to tell her to remove herself from my house. (laughs) Later, it Mm. became very clear how I had been manipulated as a sounding board for her ugly and distorted views about Native Americans. Her arrogance and disrespect were characteristic of the racist white people in South Dakota. If I tried to point it out, I'm sure she would have vehemently denied her racism. Mm -hmm. Your thoughts, Amy? Oh, yeah. I mean, I just, yeah. That concept of like, if, if you call someone a racist, if you call them out, if she, where she says, if I tried to point it out, I'm sure she would have denied her racism. I think of some of the most hurtful and racist things I've ever heard people say. If they're called on it, they get furious and, and deny, like, I am not a racist. Sometimes my, my daughter Lucy had, I overheard a phone conversation between my daughter Lucy and someone who's really important to her not very long ago where Lucy was, and she did not call the person a racist, but she was very diplomatically and gently saying this thing that you posted on social media made me really sad. And I want to share, you know, how that felt to me. Um, and this this person was just like crying and nearly yelling, and um, I felt really sad. I I mean, ve- I I do think very few people in this world would proudly admit to being racist, right? I mean, there's a very small minority that would say, "Yeah, mm-hmm. I I am." I mean, we know they exist; they're more than we thought they were. But some people will say, "Yes, I'm a proud white supremacist." But most mm-hmm. people who do hold racist views truly do 
not believe that they are racist. Um, mm -hmm. And Does, I think is that's the question of our behavior versus like, sometimes I know I behave race in racist ways. Well, and that's I'm trying what I, not to. <laughs> right. But and that's I guess that's what I loved about this book is there were other authors, too, that they admit their own racism. And it's actually not like you. Well, like you just implied, it's not just a white problem. I lived in Chile for two for a year and a half. And mm -hmm. and I got to know all of the hierarchies that Chileans have. And they are totally racist <laughs> against, <laughs> you know, people of African descent. But they have a hierarchy of which South American countries are cleaner and better than mm -hmm. other South American countries. So I think it's everywhere. But what I love about these mm -hmm. authors, I guess what I wanted to say is that they they admit it. And so once you admit it and say, I I was raised in a racist, you know, culture, society, and a hierarchical society, then I can deal with it. Then I can start to make progress. And I want to, to share right. this one quote. There's another author who's Latina, and she says, quote, for example, I am terribly racist toward Jewish people. And that like struck me. I was like, oh, like it hurt my heart to hear to see her write that. But I thought that's very brave to admit. And then she writes mm -hmm. that words sometimes come to her head unbidden about Jewish people. And they were so shocking and hateful. And she says, and some of my very closest friends are Jewish. And that was really, oh, man, like. Wow, but but how brave for her to admit that right. because she recognizes that that's not aligned with her, with who she wants to be, and so she acknowledges that that terrible her terrible voice in her brain, um, comes right. from messages that she's heard, and so she describes how she coaches it and pushes back against it, but if you deny it, you can't really you can't make changes, right? Right, right. Right. If you want to deny the truth of things, um, there, it doesn't open you up for possibilities of any yeah. change. And if that's what you value, you value a life that doesn't invite change, then that's what you value. <laughs> yeah. But then um, that's your choice, right? Yeah. So, um, so those of us who, who are marginalized, we kind of just have to move around you. And and I just want it's interesting to note, you know, that as Barbara is speaking of a white light lesbian in this case, it's worth no noting that another example of non-listening comes from homophobia, it comes from ableism, mm. it comes from all our sorts. But in homophobia, I witnessed this where a friend, upon finding out that his daughter's classmate was coming out as gay, proceeded to say many hurtful and untrue things, and I hadn't come out to this person mm. yet in mm. front of me, and I just felt you know, just felt really <laughs> a lot of pain. Um, but one of the things that he said was what a terrible choice, you know, that this boy was making. And that I remember that I just stuck with me like, oh, wow, okay, this person thinks that this is it's a choice. Well, mm -hmm. five years later, this topic came up again about someone else in in their community. And I remember, I remember like smiling to myself when when this friend, he commented, being gay is not a choice. Oh. So in my mind, and I was like, yeah, that's right. You know, like just confirming. And he like nodded and we were confirming each other. <laughs> you know? But wow. in my mind, I was like, he had come to that conclusion on his own at some point. Mm, right? People can grow. And yeah. We're... Mm. It just, it just, it was uh, interesting to witness, and of course, I didn't, I didn't mention it. I just didn't feel a need because 
like there's we're just we're we're each on our own journey of understanding about race and 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 things that can be hurtful mm-hmm. to another person regarding their skin and we're calling that racism and things that are hurtful to their disability which we call ableism and things that are hurtful to their gender which we call sexism so mm-hmm. we're all on our own journey to understanding yeah. the other yes well that actually that is a really great bridge to the last point um, that we wanted to bring out from the book. So in an essay called But I Know You, American Woman by Judith Moskovich, who's um, Latina and Jewish, she says, quote, I believe that lack of knowledge about other cultures is one of the bases for cultural oppression. I do not hold any individual American woman responsible for the roots of this ignorance about other cultures. It is encouraged and supported by the American educational and political system and by the American media. Note the lack of emphasis on learning other languages and the lack of knowledge even about where other countries are located. Often I'm asked questions like, is Argentina in Europe or Africa? (laughs) And then she says, how can one feel guilt right? How can one feel Mm -hmm. guilt about screwing over someone, some country she knows nothing about? Right. So it is true that if we don't know anything about a place or a culture, Mm -hmm. then like she says, I mean, why would we care if they get screwed over, if they're not real to us, if we don't know anything about mm-hmm. them. And I feel like that makes it, that lack of education makes us easy prey for our government to use our tax dollars to pay, for example, for weapons in conflicts, in right. conflicts we don't understand. And, they're, yep, and we're funding exactly. them, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, or we are easy prey for our, our religious institutions to use us as foot soldiers against people we don't understand as happened in California's Prop 8, which we'll talk about on a future episode too. But that lack of knowledge about other people, the lack of education really does, it can really hurt. Even if it's accidental, it can cause deep harm. And so I do love both of this, those things that Judith Muscovich says, that she doesn't hold any individual responsible for the roots of that ignorance. Um, America really is so like America centric (laughs) and a person, Mm -hmm. I mean, if your parents and you're right, like so ethnocentric, Mm -hmm. so geocentric, we're just like on an Island. It's like the whole world doesn't exist. We don't learn other languages in our schools sometimes, but, and so that's not our fault. That system, we, we didn't design it. And if our parents or teachers didn't teach us something and then the, the only available media misinforms us, then up until a point, we can't be blamed for not know, knowing something. Although, I mean, to be honest, this book was written in 1981 before there was the internet and there were like way fewer books available and there were limited resources. And now there's just, there kind of is no excuse. I feel like once you're a certain age and we realize we don't know something, there's really no reason why we can't look it up and take take some time out of something that we normally do um, mm-hmm. and instead read a book that exposes us to a different point of view. So did, what were your thoughts? Or we can on watch Gossip person? Girl. I'm just kidding. Or we can watch like, Gossip Girl. Or we can watch Gossip Girl. That's that's the problem. There's so many entertaining things that are competing for our time and attention. I mm-hmm. fall into that trap all the time. Mm. 
Well, I think it's fine too to relax and to like do, you know, watch a funny show every now and then. But yeah, I mean, you're right. That's the choice, right? If we are, we are watching right. Netflix sometimes. So every once in a while, pick a show that it's like, you know, I do need to understand this better. Or every once in a while, I know a lot of families who like dutifully read the scriptures and I'm, I'm not saying not to, but I think Jesus would be really happy about replacing that book with a different book to help I agree. get to know our fellow human beings once in a while, right? I think that would be a very spiritually um, positive thing to do. So if you're already, I'm just saying if you're already building reading time or already building watching time right. into your schedule, like replace it with something else once in a while. That's all I'm saying. What what I really enjoy being in the media world is that we we do have some choices, right, behind mm. who who we place in these roles, usually that belong to, you know, someone who's white. We can say, well, Audrey can be, oh, well, let's say Monet or, you know, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I don't watch Gossip Girl, but <laughs> Luna, right, could be a person of color. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> totally. So, don't know why I brought it up, probably just because people are talking about it and they mm-hmm. do have new characters and they are people of color. So there's mm-hmm. that. It's getting better. It, I mean, it really is. Representation I'm really noticing lately is... Oh wow, yeah. is it different than when that when we were kids, right, Jen? I oh, mean, absolutely. That leads us to the end of the episode where we share a takeaway, and I guess maybe I'll share mine first because it kind of is a continuation of what I just talked about. And then, Jen, I'll have you have the final word on the episode. Um, but my takeaway is that really I was profoundly impacted by the title, even just the title alone. Um, before I started reading the book, I had it on my bookshelf and to see this bridge called my back. Um, I had a similar experience with Sister Outsider. Those two books sat on my bookshelf for a couple months while I was reading the the first books in the podcast, and but they would just kind of sit in there. And um, I just was, I've been really deeply moved by these authors' stories, by your stories, Jen. Um, I do feel, I feel bridges do need to be built. Bridges do need to be crossed. And in order for us to understand each other and to be able to care for each other on this little rock called the earth, like you talked about earlier, um, to build a better world than we inherited, we do need to cross bridges. Um, And so My takeaway is for me, and I want to invite any listeners who are listening who do have privilege, who maybe are white or straight or financially stable and able-bodied, if you find yourself with any of those advantages, please join me in saying, it's my turn to build the bridge now. I will be the bridge. I will be the one to read the book. I will do the work of education. I will do the work of trying to understand and meet the other person where they are comfortable instead of always asking the one who's already marginalized, who's already encountered trauma, always asking them to be the one to meet me where I am and do that traveling and use their back as the bridge. I feel really excited about the opportunity to do that work and that I will take a turn. And I I just feel really humbled and really grateful that these authors did the work of writing and publishing their stories. Mm -hmm. And they made themselves so vulnerable. And so did you, Jen, in sharing your experiences and your feelings. And I feel honored to have been let in 
um, to their minds and hearts and to your mind and heart. And um, that's my, that's my takeaway is just that I'm committed to making myself a bridge um, and engaging in that way from now on. So I think that so much. Mm-hmm. I, that, yeah, I'm so grateful. My, my, my instinct in reading this book is that it is an invitation to white women to help us because our backs hurt, mm-hmm. right? Um, especially these women in the 80s, 70s, 60s. They really paved the way for for a lot of us. I I am such a privileged person. I am, you know, with financial stability, with able body, um, with the access to education that I did. And I, I just have so much gratitude for even the religion I was raised in. Um, mm-hmm. Because they're all done, I, I know it, in a spirit of connection. I know I know that humans, we just want to connect with each other. We want to f- understand who we are, where we come from, where we're going, um, how best to raise our children. We, we have these same intentions. And I, I think that I had a privilege additionally from all these other things to be a marginalized person in this country because in quoting Maxine Han Kingston, I learned to make my mind large as the Mm. universe is large so that there is room for paradoxes because I have lived in many, many, many paradoxes and I have made many, many mistakes. I've been racist. I've been homophobic. I've been ignorant to the plights of disabled and neurologically diverse persons. There have been interactions (laughs) I'm not proud of where my pain and trauma spoke to someone else's pain and trauma. And if I asked my body what it was carrying back then, and every time that I engage in these types of situations, it it carried fear. Fear for not being understood, fear for being exposed as an imperfect human. And paradoxes are frequent in my perfectly imperfect life. It's been a struggle to make room for them. And often I feel like I'm failing at my attempts, but that's all part of the experience, I think. That's my belief. Mm-hmm. And again, I I just want to go back to kind of the, you know, this work here where we were we're reminding listeners where where male supremacy hurts all genders, white supremacy hurts all races. Well, thank you, Jen. Thanks for that um, takeaway and that wrapping up the episode. And thank you for everything you shared today. This was such a great opportunity. And I I admire your work. I just love you as a person. Thanks for being here today on the episode. I'm so grateful. It's been a real honor doing this work with you, Amy. Next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy, we will be discussing Women, Race, and Class by Angela Davis. 
This book was published the same year as this bridge called My Back in 1981, and its publication was really a watershed moment in women's studies and specifically in Black feminism. It looks at the history of the United States with Black women's experience being central. And I was really enthralled the whole time I read it. I really looked forward to to reading it. Um, It's not a terribly long book, and I you know, kept it in my purse and would look forward to um, being able to read it for the couple of days that I had it. I really highly recommend it to listeners, along with the book that we'll read the following week, which which came out the same year, um, which is Bell Hooks, Ain't I a Woman? Um, So 1981 was a a big year for um, publications of women of color and such an exciting time. Um, Any public library will have women, race, and class if you want to check it out at the library. And it's also available as an inexpensive paperback. So in true Angela Davis fashion, it's available to everybody. So read it if you can, and then join us for the discussion of Angela Davis's Women, Race, and Class next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. 